Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. This is from John Calvin, who wrote, We are not to look at what people deserve, but to attend to the image of God which exists in every person. It is this image to which we owe honor and love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the beginning of our Christ and Culture series. The gospel, that is the announcement regarding Jesus of Nazareth and all of his benefits, has always had a complex relationship with every culture it has entered. My goal for this series, which will last until about Advent, the goal is that we would grow uh, in the skill that Jesus himself had. You see, Jesus was skilled mindfully and emotionally. He was a person of great genius and a person of great feeling. And if we ended this series in a place of greater perception and greater love than mission accomplished, uh, wider eyes and a bigger heart, and it is always my attempt to present to you orthodoxy without acrimony. The first uh, three sermons in this series will seek to establish a theological framework through which we'll view a variety of contemporary issues. We begin with the first portion of that framework. We begin with the absolute bedrock of anthropology, bedrock which made Judaism differ from all of its ancient competitors, and by extension, Christianity differ from its present competitors. And that bedrock anthropology we call the image of God. Some of you have read Les Miserables, or you have seen the musical. You may remember that Fantine was the most tragic character in that novel. Fantine was a 20-year-old woman who fell in love with a playboy aristocrat who essentially conned her into sharing his bed, and then after she fell in love with him, he abandoned her via a note. She became pregnant and was in a financial crisis having lost her job. She gave her baby away to some scammers, though she didn't know they were scammers, and they kept requesting money from her in order to provide for the so-called needs of the child. She eventually started selling her clothing. She cut her hair and sold it, sold her jewelry, had some of her teeth plucked out and sold them, and eventually sold herself, her very body, uh, to men that would use her. She was stripped, stripped by life, and found herself before Inspector Javert, uh, the image of Phariseeism. And before the officer, Fantine pleads for mercy. And this is what Hugo writes about Fantine. Fantine trembled, bent down, shaken with sobs, blinded by tears, her neck bare, clenching her hands, coughing dryly, stammering 
with an agonized voice. Grief can be a divine and terrible radiance which transfigures the wretched. At that moment, Fontaine was again beautiful. She would have softened a heart of granite. She was stripped before the world, but there was an element of Fontaine that could not be lost, even if she lost everything else. And that element is what we call the image of God. And so that's my question tonight. What about you is irreducible, invincible? What about you is bedrock? What cannot be robbed from you or lost by you? It's the image of God. And it has many aspects, but I'd like to address four of them. The first aspect of the image of God, arguably the most important, is its priority within the divine construction. The priority of the image of God. Where God says, Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is a complete contrast to what we find in ancient mythology. According to ancient mythology, human beings were created out of violent warfare between the gods, out of abortive tissue, out of blood clots. Human beings uh, were created in darkness, difficulty, strain. And that's why, according to the ancients, we still bear within our souls that initial creative strain. The biblical vision is very different. It begins only with blessing. But we deal with the same kind of idea or negativity uh, through the vehicle of uh, philosophical Darwinism. I'm not here critiquing biological Darwinism. I'm talking about some of the epistemological assumptions. The philosophical underpinnings of some aspects of Darwinism is atheistic, and therefore the human being, the human story, human life, human progress is all for naught. Your life, my life, our lives collectively are meaningless. The only meaning is what you fabricate, and that will soon evaporate after you <laughs> dissipate. <laughs> hey, did you see what I did there? Ah, that was good, wasn't it? Not planned. Nevertheless, Genesis 1 stands in stark contrast to these other ideas, in which God creates human beings after his own image and likeness, and declares not that they are merely good, but at the apex of his creation, after he makes men and women, he says that we are very good. And this is the claim that human beings bear the likeness of their common father, of their God. Now, uh, imagine how that must have sounded to Jewish ears, that you bear the image and likeness of God. Some of you will remember the second commandment, which forbids the construction of any image of any other God or the likeness thereof. Not permitted. The idea in Judaism, a profoundly mature idea, when it comes to the development of religion, is that you cannot contain the infinite and the finite. You can't create a statue and think that it summarizes adequately all of the attributes or glory of God. That's why idolatry always gets something right, that, that goodness and beauty has its origin in divinity, but then narrows that divinity too seriously and, and too stringently and seeks to uh, create a creaturely form of that divinity, and thereby you end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And Judaism was terrified of that idea and inspired to be terrified of that idea. And so you have the second commandment which forbids these things, and there seems to be a glaring exception to the rule that God can create something, someone, who can reflect the divine image and likeness. 
He can do it. And that's what you are. That's what I am. A reflection of the infinite. Comparable to nothing else in creation. Consider this priority from the perspective of Genesis 1. Before we existed, grandeur already filled the world. There were already sunrises over the Pacific, uh, moonlight over the Atlantic, the Himalayas, starfish, silver panthers, and blue whales. And then you arrived. We arrived. And we mean more to God than the rings of Saturn, than Ireland in the spring, than Westminster Abbey, than the Pieta, than Beethoven's Ninth, and than 5,000 butterflies in flight. You are more impressive, more majestic, than all of those things put together, because none of them bear the image of the eternal. But you do. And so Genesis begins with this high anthropology. God is so enamored with his own image, with his own likeness in us, that Jesus dies for love of you. He does not die for Mount Rushmore. He does not die for uranium. He does not die for a museum. Instead, Jesus lays down his life for those who bear his image. And think about this priority and how this spark is not lost after the fall. Because in Genesis 9, after the fall and after the flood, God still looks at his human creation and said they still bear the image of God. We haven't lost it. It's been besmirched, but it's not gone. And consider the universality of this priority, that everyone you meet shares this image. Every person, the cashier at Arby's, the Navy cadet, the vice president, the pope, the ill-tempered mother in the middle of Aldi, the plumber who constantly overcharges you, the white-hooded clansman, the grinning politician, and the priest in the pulpit all have the divine spark. A universal dignity given to the human race. That is the heavenly priority from the perspective of Genesis 1. But it's not just about priority. It's about position. There is a grand task to be done by those who bear God's image. This is verse 26. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 28 uh, reiterates the command. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Image bearers are culture creators. In the Reformed tradition, they call this the cultural mandate. That is, the task of the human being is not to consider spirituality to be something that is bound in an ashram somewhere or on the top of a mountain. Now, there are some days as an introvert where hiding at the top of a mountain and humming to myself sounds really terrific. But the spiritual quest in the Bible, or the cultural mandate, which is deeply spiritual, has a tangible quality to it. We are to have babies fill the world, which by necessity means exploration and discovery, and have dominion. Uh, that, by the way, does not mean abusing creation. It means that we cultivate creation, civilize creation, bring some order to creation. We are many sovereigns, if you will, or to quote Meredith Klein, the great Old Testament scholar, we are ruled rulers. We are not the ultimate ruler. There's only one ultimate sovereign, and that's God. But God has given each of us a little jurisdiction, 
to quote Candide, a little garden to tend. And that's your task. Everybody in this room has a task, a little sphere of influence, or a big sphere of influence. You're not the ultimate, but you serve the ultimate. And the ultimate has given you something partial and incredible to do in this life. And therefore, life is filled with dignity. And you have to note the earthiness of our forebear spirituality. This God resembler, this image bearer, what does he do with his image bearing? He farms and engages in the classification of animals. You might not consider that spiritual work, but the first chapter of Genesis does. Christian spirituality and spiritual service in particular has a broad expression. I used to think that if you really wanted to serve God, you would get ordained and wear fantastic outfits. And, you know, that idea was, was so deep in my own heart that, you know, I mean, it was inevitable, I guess. Um, but, but the thing is, that isn't true, not from a biblical perspective. We believe that culture-making through science, through music, through mathematics, through culinary skill, through arts, through education, all of that is God's work. It's holy work. It's sacred work. Priority, position, also physicality. The image of God is tangible. Notice God creates physical beings to steward a physical creation. There is no such thing as a bodiless image of God. We know this because of eschatology, or what we could call the end times. At the end of all things, God will cause the resurrection of the dead. That means that your eternity is not bodiless. What God does is perfect his image and give us a physicality that will never decay. When we hurt ourselves, when we cut ourselves, when we burn our bodies, some people who have a lot of pain inside do that, when we starve ourselves, when we refuse to go to the doctor when we know something is wrong, when we don't think our sleep or recreation are important, all of those things, things that we might consider just physical acts and therefore a little less important are hugely spiritual. The image of God is tangible. It also involves physical differentiation, creating male and female in his image. And notice that these two initial image bearers are both similar and different. They are similar in that they both reflect the image of God. Now, again, contrast to the ancient world. In ancient religion, it was believed sometimes that monarchs were the sons of the gods or bore the image of God in some sense. In others, maybe it was men. Men certainly bore the image of God. But in Genesis, it's men and women who together, equally, share the image of God. So there's something similar about the, these image bearers. There's also something that differs about them in that they differ in gender, and that is part of God's good and holy order. Gender, as an aspect of God's image, is by design tangible, biological, and differentiated. Every cell in a man's body is chromosomally male, and similarly, every cell in a female's body is chromosomally female. Now, in our post-Genesis 3 world, we know that some people are born with gender-related abnormalities. Some are born with both male and female organs, and then the gender at birth is essentially decided by a doctor. Uh, Jesus, by the way, notices this. Uh, he says that some are by birth eunuchs. You may remember that. 
But what I'm noticing in our own day is a very uh, quickly growing and forceful current and cultural shift which asserts that gender resides only in the mind. The gender is just in your brain. Because it's mental and emotional, gender is malleable or self-defined. Perhaps you've heard the, the term that's being used now. It's called gender dysphoria, where a person is born with a, with a male or female body but feels that their insides don't correspond with their outsides. And, and there's a tension there that for them is very real. They really do sense that very deeply. They don't quite connect with their physicality. Some who find themselves in this dysphoric position believe that there is an answer, and the answer is to select your own gender. Minimally, it can be about changing the pronouns that people use when they speak to you, but more maximally, it can involve, as we know, hormone treatments or even radical surgery to change or alter one's body to be corresponding uh, to what's going on on the inside. I have people in my life whom I love deeply who suffer from that dysphoric confusion on the inside. I do want to say, though, that this shift that we're experiencing, where gender is principally in the mind, is a form of what Christians have historically called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a rather ancient heresy that originally had to do with Jesus himself, but it's the belief that the physical world and our physical bodies are unreal, or less real, or less good than the logos, the mind or the emotion of a person, that those things are ultimately definitive, but the body is not. Correspondingly, related to Jesus' resurrection, uh, the early Gnostics believed that what's critical about Jesus Christ is his teaching ministry, and his ideals continue to live on in our hearts and in our minds, and in that way he is risen from the dead, which is a denial of the actual biblical text, because the scriptural claim is that Jesus really did rise not just in his thoughts, but in his flesh. And so my, my deep concern for this current new vision is its Gnostic roots. And I think uh, bad theology is harmful to people. The Gnostic vision is terribly harmful. There's a 2014 study out of UCLA that 45% of those who regard themselves as transgender attempt to take their own lives. You 45, I mean, if that doesn't make you weep. You know, for me, this is not some political thing. This is about people, precious, image-bearing people whom God loves, who are struggling very, very deeply. And I think the Christian invitation, call it a cliche, call it a cliche, is to uphold, and by the way, people who use this language don't do it well, but to uphold truth at 100% and compassion at 100%. One in one hand, one in the other. Compassion without truth is sloppy sentimentality, and truth without compassion is the wrath of God. And let me say this to you. You don't need one without the other, and neither does anybody else from you. Truth. We, as believers, have to be rooted and not carried about by every wind of doctrine. You can find a blog post that will justify anything in the world. It doesn't mean it's all true. We need to be uh, rooted in what the Holy Scriptures teach. And if we're confused about that, that's okay. 
But it's still worth seeking out what is the voice of the ancients? What is the voice of the Word of God that we've been given? But also love. Um, I think it's hugely important that we listen, not listen for data so that we can confront it right away, but listen for the hurt of people. Listen to the hurt of people who do not feel at home in their own skin. They're not making it up, most of them. For a variety of reasons, maybe some of them chosen, maybe some of them not, people deal with all sorts of inner conflict, don't you? You probably have conflict in your own life based on choices that you've made, and conflict in your life because of all sorts of circumstances that have thrust it upon you. Other people have that inner conflict too, and it may relate to their bodies, their genders. But to listen, listen for that hurt, and to have compassion on people who may be struggling in ways that you can't even understand. And let me say this, I think Christians ought to be regarded as more honest and compassionate than the world. So my question to you is this, would somebody in your life say that you are the most compassionate person they've ever met? Or the most honest person that they've ever met? That should be our quest, to be both honest and compassionate, and to have a reputation for being that way. Remember James 1, friends, as we seek to understand our culture and sometimes react to what we believe or its um, confused directions. James chapter 1, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Scorn hurts the scornful and harms the world and helps no one in any circumstance. So, priority, position, and physicality, which is a good gift of God, a differentiated physicality. Lastly, plurality. The text says, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Them. God's image involves plurality. It's fascinating. It is most fully expressed not by the autonomous individual, but by, in this initial case, two individuals. And more than that, two individuals who are presumed by the Genesis account to be married. Adam and Eve in the garden never had a marital ceremony. You know, I, Adam, take the Eve to be my betrothed. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Instead, marriage is so much part and parcel to the creation, it's assumed uh, from the start. And this fact of this plurality in, in the image of God should not surprise us, as God himself involves singularity and differentiation. One God in multiple persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, God's image is more we than me, more us than I. This runs against uh, and runs contrary to many assumptions uh, related to our own Western culture and the importance of autonomy. Some of that stems from Descartes, some of it predates him. I think, therefore, I am, right? So the thinking person, particularly the brain of the thinking person, is the measure of all reality. The scriptures have a different view. Uh, the Bible is rich in this idea that identity comes through plurality. That's why the Old Testament is not the story of one person. It's the cultivation of a community, a family that we know as Israel. The New Testament expands that idea and considers not just Israel, but uh, Gentiles to be brothers and sisters in Christ, living stones built upon one another, uh, and a body that is dependent upon one another. Dependence is the uh, bloodstream of the scriptures. And so, something about priority, position, physicality, and plurality. That is our irreducible identity. 
as the image of God. And redemption, that which we've received through the cross, brings us back to that original created intent. God's grace does not abdicate creation nor destroy creation. It returns us to creation. It puts us back in the garden in which we get to tend as fallen, yes, but as fallen and redeemed, ruled rulers. And this is what Luther calls the royal return to the earth, that redemption gives you back to the world. So that's our irreducible identity, the image of God as priority, position, physicality, and plurality. This is our anthropological past, It is our anthropological future, and by God's grace, it will even bud in the present. So I'd like to apply these four ideas to us very briefly, but starting with the last first, plurality. Work to deliberately cultivate friendships with image bearers, not images of image bearers. That is to say, have more face-to-face conversations with people and fewer conversations and relationships via social media. There is something about staring into somebody's eyes when you speak to them and occasionally breathing in their bad breath that connects you to them in a particular and meaningful way. This, by the way, is a huge help for depression. If you have ever suffered through depression or you're in depression now, I've been there. Not a pleasant country. The impulse in depression, at least for me, was to isolate Get away from the world. And then somehow be disappointed that the world isn't knocking at your door. The best thing that you can do if you're depressed is to connect in a healthy way with image bearers who love you and will love you well. Uh, It's a huge help. Let me say also that healthy dependence on people is not weakness. Autonomy is weakness. Dependence is the will of God for your life. Plurality is his design for image bearers. Physicality. Present fallenness certainly affects our bodies, all of our bodies, and it may affect our sense of settledness within our bodies. It does that for some of us in this life. But from the unfallen creation, we know that physical maleness and femaleness is a gift, a reflection of something that is infinite and precious. So I would say seek to live into rather than denigrate your tangible image. Yes, the physical person that God has made you to be. It's easy to abuse our bodies, easy to hurt ourselves, easy to want to locate the pain on our body that we feel deep within. But remember, even in a fallen landscape, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you are beautiful, whether anybody has ever told you that or not. Physicality, something about position. As an image bearer, you are a ruler, and God has given you a sphere of dominion, a circle of influence. Music, theater, law, social work, education, poetry, cooking, parenthood. This is a holy labor. And doing work which expresses your image and lifts up other image bearers along with you brings us back to the garden in a real sense. And so I would say this. If you are able to, and sometimes life seeks to prevent us, seek out meaningful labor. It can help you to flourish as you are designed to flourish. And lastly, most importantly, priority. Share God's priorities related to human beings, image bearers, or put another way, chiefly love what God chiefly loves. People. 
I hope that you have seen and memorized most of the episodes in the show that we know as The Office. That's ultimately my second year hope for you as your priest. It's good for you. In The Office, uh, um, Michael Scott is the manager. He's played by Steve Carell, and he manages a paper supply company, and he's sort of an oaf. But he has an employee named Ryan Howard, I'm a young upstart hotshot um, hipster, who was uh, caught bad-mouthing Michael and his over-reliance on relationships and his constant need to be liked by all of his employees and customers. After hearing Ryan, Michael said in a moment of sad reflection, he said, remember, Ryan, business is not about business. Business is about people. People, Ryan. And people never go out of business. The task of our lives is not chiefly to support some cause or ideology or party. Not to have the perfect house with well-polished silverware and an immaculately clean car or the absence of debt. Those are not the goals. The goal is to draw near and learn to love well, learn to love our fellow image bearers. That's the priority. And this means, of course, that we ought to love ourselves as image bearers. Your dignity is foundational to who you are as a person. And remember that original blessing precedes original sin. It's older and more foundational. You came from God, and there is an irreducible grandeur in you whether you see it or you don't. This fact is very hard for most of us to accept. Hard for me to accept. We can easily wallow in the swamps of shame, regret, and self-hatred. We can cut ourselves, starve ourselves, or carry around gallons of rage. We have yet to accept that we bear the divine image. But when you scorn yourself, you scorn all of the hope that he's placed in you and all of the love that he has for you, can we begin to imagine that God may not see us the way we see ourselves and may not carry around derision in his heart the way that we carry derision in ours? And if you were told that you don't matter, if you were told that you are trash, then all of those people and all of those voices are in stark contrast to the King of Heaven who speaks a different word over your life. You are worth more than the sparrows. You are worth more than the cathedrals. They do not bear God's image. You do. We are all, in some very real way, Fontaine. And this corrupted and corrupting life will strip us bare. But in you lies an irreducible, invincible summer, the image of God, for which Jesus Christ made full atonement. And that image within you will outlast the stars in the sky. Calvin said, we are not to look 
at what people deserve, but to attend to the image of God which exists in everyone. It is this image to which we owe all honor and love. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.